Our third reading of scripture this morning comes from Matthew's account of the good news. We'll be listening to Jesus speaking in chapter 7. Listen for God's word to you. Keep on asking and you will receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking and you will find. Keep on knocking and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks, receives. Everyone who seeks, finds. And to everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. You parents, if your children ask for a loaf of bread, do you give them a stone instead? Or if they ask for a fish, do you give them a snake? Of course not. So if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask him? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We're going to try to do some technology today. And if it doesn't work, it's all Anita's fault. No. Uh, right under the bus. All right. So, um, so, um, so let's see. All right. Look at that. So, um, so uh, we're going to start a new series today. We're going to kick off four weeks of doctrine. And I know that that, that doesn't sound as fun as I think it will be. But, um, but the good news is it's four weeks and not seven. Uh, but, but, the, but the better news is I think doctrine is really important. And I think that as we go through this series, you're going to find that there are doctrines that really do matter, um, not just in an in a ivory tower context, not just in terms of what Christians uh, believed at one point back in the dusty past, but actually what it is that helps you live out your life as a Christian today. So we're going to be looking at doctrine. And the doctrine we're going to be looking at um, is uh, from um, one of the creeds of the church, um, the, the Apostles' Creed specifically. Now, the Apostles' Creed goes on and on at some length, and we're not going to look at all of it. We're just going to look at Article 1. So that's the title of the series. We're going to look at Article 1 of the Apostles' Creed. Now, if you didn't uh, grow up in a church context or you uh, uh, didn't grow up in a confessional context, then let me explain what I mean by a, by a creed. Um, a creed is a, is a statement of a belief. It's a formal statement of belief that periodically a church has done where they've said, these are the things that we believe. And the word creed actually means to believe. If, um, if something is incredible, okay, if something is incredible, that's something you, you find it difficult to believe. It's incredible. If you have good credit score, that means people believe you will pay your, your bills, right? So credit or incredible all relate to this word creed. It's what do you believe? And uh, at different times throughout the, the history of Christianity, the church has met together and said, here are the things we believe. And uh, one of the first times they did that was at the Council of Nicaea. And the reason it was the first time was because until a couple of years before, the church had been illegal. It had been an underground movement. And so because it was underground, there wasn't much coordination between different parts of the Roman Empire. So if you were in Spain or if you were in North Africa or if you were in Turkey, um, you couldn't necessarily be sure that what you thought Christianity taught was the same thing that Christianity taught elsewhere. So um, after the emperor Constantine became a Christian, he legalized 
Christianity throughout the empire. And one of the first things he did um, within just a few years is he summoned uh, leaders of the church from all over the empire together in what was called the First Ecumenical Council, the the Council of Nicaea. Ecumenical is a word that means uh, people from all over the world. So in, in Roman context, they, they gathered people from all over the world. And what they did is they met together and they created something called the Nicene Creed. Um, it, it got uh, tinkered with over the next century or so, so the version we have today is actually from 431, but it was uh, a first put down in 325 right after Christianity became legal. Now, the problem with the Nicene Creed is a little longer than, than the um, Apostles' Creed, so we're going to look at the Apostles' Creed, um, which um, is, is not as old as the Nicene Creed. It's, uh, it reached its current form in the 8th century, but parts of it go back to the second century. So as a part of the, the baptismal liturgy, liturgy in the very early church from about 150 on. So the Apostles' Creed is a little older and it's a little shorter. Now again, if you didn't grow up in a confessional church, um, in a liturgical church that believed in confessions, you may say, you know, uh, and a lot of them do, they say, I have no creed but the Bible. Well, um, my guess is your Bible has headings and it may have page numbers and it may have maps in the back. And the way that Christians view creeds is the same way, that they they are helpful if they're helpful, and if they're not helpful, then they don't have the, the same authority as the Bible. So um, uh, no one's going to argue with the location of Rome on a map. Um, it's not that we don't believe it's true, but we don't believe it's inspired. So um, if you're not a creedal person, if you're not a confessional person, that's okay. Both the uh, Presbyterian Church and the Methodist Church, which this congregation is a part of, um, do do have creeds uh, because they're different denominations. They have different understandings of them. The Presbyterian Church is overtly confessional. The Methodist Church is connectional. I've asked Methodists, what does that mean? And I don't understand the answer. Um, but I did look in their Book of Discipline, and the Apostles' Creed is in it. So, so um, uh, I, I mentioned that there are these two creeds. We're going to do the Apostles' Creed instead of the... We're going to be guided by the Apostles' Creed rather than the Nicene Creed. And the reason is right here. The Nicene Creed is a little bit longer and a little bit more detailed. So uh, you see, and I know it's small print, the Nicene Creed says, We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth of all that is, seen and unseen. The Apostles' Creed is a little bit shorter. It says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. So you can see they left off some things when they were formulating that. So um, today what we're going to look at is just the first part, which is God the Father. And uh, God the Father, you would think, maybe, um, is not a, an objectionable thing, but it has met with some objection in recent years. Um, there's, great, there's great scriptural authority for the use of uh, father language of God. Um, Jesus used it himself. Uh, the, um, and, and Jesus actually developed it from Jewish thinking. Um, in the Jewish in the Jewish liturgy from that time, we don't have a lot of evidence, but what evidence we have shows that that uh, it was very common uh, commonplace idea for Jews to think of God as the King, but then sometimes they would say and the Father of Israel. What Jesus did is he applied that to us as individual believers. He he taught his disciples to pray to your Father. Okay, he said he said pray like this, our Father who art in heaven. Jesus took that from the nation as a whole to say, no, you can actually access God by praying as um, as one of God's children. So Jesus personalized it in a way that had not been practiced before then. 
So uh, Jesus Jesus uh, personalized it. The other writers of the New Testament use father language of God a lot. And um, it was, as I mentioned in the Apostles' Creed, it was part of the early liturgy of the church. So early Christians, um, even when it was illegal to be a Christian, they held on to the idea of God as father. So uh, it's got great authority, but it has met with objections in recent years. Um, and um, I'll get into that, but just as an example of what some of the objections have been. The Methodists have something called the Social Creed, and I'll talk more about that later. But the Social Creed is a statement of what what um, uh, Methodists believe about social justice and the church's role in the area of social justice. And in that creed, um, it mentions God as kind of the reason for the creed six times, and it mentions the Father zero times. The Presbyterian Church in 1983 put together something called the Brief Statement of Faith, and in that they refer to God 23 times, or we, I, us, uh, they, us. Um, they refer to God 23 times, and they only refer to God as Father twice. And in both of those, they kind of distance themselves. For example, they say, uh, we trust in God who Jesus called Father. Um, but they don't say, and so can you. Um, and at the end, they close with a gloria, a benediction. Um, glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Amen. So those are the only two times the brief statement of faith says Father. So there has been this kind of distancing from fatherhood language of God. And there's two reasons. One of them is non-inclusive language. Uh, if, if, you, if you view God as a father, then it makes it that much more difficult to view God as a mother. Um, and, and that's just the nature of the way we think about parenting, is it's difficult for us to, to privilege the language of father without um, detracting from the language of motherhood. But um, Scripture teaches us that God transcends those categories, and in fact, um, uh, uh, God himself, speaking to the prophet, uh, compares himself to a mother. He says, can a mother forget her nursing child? Can she feel no love for the child she has born? Even if that were possible, I would not forget you. God compares himself to a mother with a nursing child. And Jesus says, uh, of himself, he says about Jerusalem, he says, how often I have wanted to gather your children together as a hen protects her chicks beneath her wings, but you wouldn't let me. So there's scriptural argument for using motherhood language of God, uh, just as we use fatherhood language of God. So um, there's nothing wrong with it, but it raises the question, okay, well, what language are you going to use? Um, and what a, lot of, what a lot of Christians today have used is the word creator. They've, they've replaced the word father with creator. So they talk about God the creator, um, uh, Jesus or Christ the redeemer, and the Holy Spirit who is the sustainer. And um, the problem with that language, particularly of God, is that it's a different category than um, father. We're going to talk next week about creator, what it means that God is creator, and how that uh, uh, impacts us in our, in our lives as Christians. But creator is different than father. If your next-door neighbor... If their house caught on fire and uh, one of the parents rushed into the house to rescue a child, you'd say, good for them. You know, I don't know if I'd be that brave, but good for them. That's a good thing that you did that. But if they rushed into their garage to rescue a woodworking project, you'd kind of go, I don't know if your priorities are quite right. You know, I mean, that's great. You know, we all like our little creations, you know, but but. To be a father, to be a mother, is a different category of experience. It's a relational thing. Uh, it has a different character than to be than to be a creator. So um, uh, I'm not sure if creator captures everything that 
that father does. Um, so we might say parent, and some people say, yeah, but parent's too clunky. It doesn't, you know, I don't like parent. Um, but that's something I think over time practice could change. But there's a problem, and the problem is filioque. Just out of curiosity, has anyone ever heard of the word filioque before? Okay, there's a, all right, well, okay. My wife and, and one of our CREs. Okay, all right. So, so filioque is a church, is a church history word, and nobody knows it if you haven't had to have, have a, an examination in this area at some point. Filioque means literally, uh, uh, and the son. Filio is son, and then que means and. So, filioque. And what it comes from is the Nicene Creed. The reason I mentioned the Nicene Creed is earlier is because this is an example of something they say about the Holy Spirit. They say, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. Now, when Constantine called that, that group together in 325, he said, he said, what do you all believe? And they said, we believe in the Holy Spirit, who proceeds from the Father. Okay. And then time went by. And the people who spoke Latin in one part of the empire they started saying, you know what, there's a lot of good theological reasons why we need to be sure and mention the Holy Spirit also proceeds from the Son. And the people in the Greek-speaking part of the empire didn't get the memo, okay? And so they found out, hey, did you know that the, the Roman, the, the Latin-speaking people are, have tacked this thing onto the creed? And um, they basically sent a, a series of polite notes called anathemas, um, that's not a polite note. It's a, it's a, it's a excommunication, basically. Um, they sent a bunch of notes, nasty grams, we might call them, to, to the, the western part of the empire saying, hey, you can't go adding to the creed. You don't get to just add to the creed. And the pope sent back a letter saying, yes, I do, because I'm the pope. And they said, well, you're not the boss of me. Okay. And what resulted from that is the great schism. And, um, uh, in, uh, this, this is not, this was really the straw that broke the camel's back. It wasn't the only argument. But it was certainly kind of the last straw. So this filioque, these two words, um, that really are only of interest to people who, you know, live, who do live in ivory towers, and, um, it had a great impact. Um, to this day, uh, Western Christianity comes from those parts of the world, and Eastern Christianity, the orange parts of the world, and, uh, Eastern Christianity comes from the, the blue parts of the world. There are Russian Orthodox churches in this town. There's Greek Orthodox churches in this town that follow an Orthodox tradition that really boils down to um, the arguments that culminated with the filioque. Okay, Christianity had not just a, a schism, not just a debate between three members of the church who know quit quit having dinner together or whatever, but entire nations and church history and really the, church, the history of the world was affected by this simple word. So... Um, by all means, argue that, that uh, God is not simply Father, God is also parent. That's certainly a fair, fair thing to argue. But I do ask you, don't make the mistake that Pope, whatever his name was, don't just say, this is the way we're going to do it from now on. Do the hard work of ecumen- ecumenism. Get a council of people together. You know, last year we, we summoned, uh, we, we remembered the... Um, the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And we, we hold up um, uh, Martin Luther because he famously said, here I stand, I can do no other. My conscience compels me to stand on this ground. But if you remember, what we actually celebrated 500, the 500th anniversary of was not him saying, here I stand, I can do no other. What we celebrated was him posting a sign on a door that said, let's have a debate because I've got some concerns 
and I'd like to see if we could come together on this. Christians should not split until we know that there's no way we can unify. So is parent a better language than father? I think there's a good argument to be made for it. But I discourage people from just saying, I'm going to start using it, and the rest of you just better catch up. Because we've got a long 2,000-year history of Christians doing that. So that's, that's, uh, that's what I would say about that question. But I think there's a deeper and, and bigger question. And um, uh, to not just be ecumenical, to not just uh, uh, invite other people into a conversation and see if we can come to agreement. The other problem, though, and this is a very real problem, is bad dads. A lot of people have bad uh, associations of fathers. Maybe maybe some of you have, have bad associations. When you think father, you do not feel warm and cuddly. Okay, Maybe you have a bad association when you hear the word father. I have um, mentioned before the, the miracle baby. I talk about our friends in Colorado who, had, who adopted a child. He was taken from his home uh, at about three weeks because his father had, or presumptive father, his mother's boyfriend had um, severely battered him. And the doctor said he would never walk or use his arm or see. And by a series of miracles and a great number of medical interventions, he does uh, see, he does walk, and he does um, use his arm. So I'm, I'm, I'm as aware of, of anybody that there are bad dads in the world. When I was doing prison ministry, I heard stories that um, all you can do is shake your head and say, that's so, so sad. And I know some of you have stories of your own or know people who have stories of bad dads. And that is why we should talk about not just our own perspective of what seems to make sense, but what Jesus teaches us on this very subject. Jesus says in our reading today, he says, you parents, you parents, the word parent here is is a is an inclusive language word. It means you person, you, you people. Jesus is using inclusive language, and if he does, so can we. I don't have a problem with inclusive language. But Jesus says, you parents, if your children ask for a loaf of bread, do you give them a stone instead? If they ask for a fish, do you give them a snake? Of course not. He says, nobody would do that, or nobody should do that. Jesus knows there are bad parents. And if there are bad parents today, there certainly were bad parents 2,000 years ago. Jesus is not arguing the existence of bad parents. What he says is everybody knows better. And so he goes on. He says, so if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, he says, he, he lumps us all together. He says, we are all sinful people. And the reason is, is not because we all necessarily sin, but we all know what's right, and sometimes we don't do it. Okay. I can remember, honestly, the closest I've ever been to going to jail in my life was when my son wore me out one night. I, uh, I was not in a good place. And thank God, you know, you read the advice, go to the other room and just, just clear your head. Um, sometimes we do things that are wrong. Jesus is saying we are all sinful people because we have all been in a place where we knew what was right and we did what was wrong. Maybe we weren't bad dads. Maybe we weren't bad moms. But we've all understood what it is to be a sinner. We've all been in a place where we knew what was right and did what was wrong. And Jesus says, if you, sinful people, know what is right, how much more 
Will your heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask him? He says, if you don't always give a stone to your son, if you don't always give a serpent to your child, how much more does God give good gifts to his children? He says the problem with the bad dad argument is not that there aren't bad dads. There's plenty of bad dads. It's tragic how many bad dads there are. The problem is that we're looking at the problem the wrong way. Instead of looking at human God, human dads and taking our cue from that, we need to look to our Heavenly Father who is perfect, who never knows what is right and fails to do it. God does not sin and is not tempted to sin. Jesus says, look to that Heavenly Father. So he says, yes, there are bad dads. But in that same passage, in the same, in the same message, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, we are to be perfect. The standard is perfection, even as our Father in heaven is perfect. Jesus says the, the, the goal for us as Christians is to aim at perfection. Now there's two implications of this that I can think of. If we aim at perfection, the first one is, what do we do about those bad dads? What do we do about the victims of bad dads and bad moms. I just saw in the paper today, there's a mom arrested in Florida who was arrested for letting her two-year-old baby smoke meth. You saw it too. There was a woman who drove a car full of kids off a cliff the other day. You know, there are bad people and it's not related just to men. There's bad people in this world. So what do we do about that? Well, Jesus tells us to be perfect. He says, he says that we have a role. The way the Methodist Church deals with it is they created a social, a social creed, and the entire, um, the, a great chunk of the uh, the discipline speaks to the issue of how the how Christians are to live in a world um, full of people, not filled with, but that contains people who do bad things. So what do we do? The first Christians back when there was only the the Nicene Creed, they established orphanages. Because in that era, a bad dad could actually just take a child and put him up on a hill and say, I'm leaving him for the wild animals. And Christians said, that's wrong. I will take in that child. We are dirt poor. We are so poor you cannot imagine how poor we are. But we cannot let that go. That is a child of God who just got put up on the mountain. So we're going to adopt him into our house and we're going to trust God to take care of it. And the Methodists stand in that tradition when they say there are things that Christians are called to do, to, to work for social justice, to work for the, the protection of those who are vulnerable. Uh, children, young people, but also aging and infirm people. Anybody who's in a position of vulnerability, we are called as Christians to support. And so should we pray for people who are victims of bad dads? Yes. But let me counsel you right now. When you pray to God and say, I feel so bad about that that family down the street because they've got a bad dad, the answer that God may give you is yes. Do something about it. So we're called as Christians to be good dads, to aim at perfection, to build a world where there are good dads and where the bad dads cannot harm their children. But there's another thing, which is to point to God. And this is the reason, this is ultimately my reason why I come down on the side of fatherhood language. 
because parents are given an extra vocation, which is to point to God. Everybody in the world, every person you ever come in contact with is an image bearer for God. The, the idea there is that the world should look at us and see God reflected in us. And there is a particular vocation for parents that people can look at us who are parents and say, okay, I understand God a little bit better now. Christians cannot cede the ground of fatherhood and motherhood to the bad dads so that when people look at them, they get a distorted picture of what God is like. Instead, Christians are called to be image bearers of God and to reflect the idea of heavenly fatherhood and motherhood. So each of us who has children or grandchildren or who have children next door are called to be someone that that child can look at and say, okay, I understand God a little bit better now because they're like that person, but even better. God is like Mrs. Smith next door or Mr. Jones across the street. They're like my dad, that they're like my grandma. God is like that, but even more so. This is an extra vocation. We're called to it. Whether or not we change the language for God, we are called to reflect God. So in your personal life and together as society, we are called to address the problem of bad dads, not simply to say that's too bad and let's change our language of God because of that. We're called to actually be active in intervening in people's lives, saying you can't do that. We're going to take your child away from you. Because God doesn't want there to be bad dads. And he wants us to illustrate what it means to be a good parent. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, none of us, none of us are worthy to be called image bearers of your perfection. But you call us to reflect your glory to the whole creation. You know how bad we have done that. And you call us also to reflect what it is to be a father, what it is to be a loving parent. And you know how badly some of us have done that. So, Lord, make us better. Make us better image bearers and make us better parents, grandparents, neighbors. Help us to be like you to the people who don't know you. And, Lord, help us to answer the prayers of the vulnerable, the old and the young, all those who need a parental a parental role in their lives to care for them in their vulnerability. We pray all these things through Christ our Lord. Amen.